Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, Pastor Tom Ellenboss brings us a message where we'll be taking a look at a time when some religious leaders tried to trap Jesus between two impossible choices. And, as always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tom. Well, good morning. My name is Tom Ellenboss. If we haven't met, would love to connect with you. And happy birthday tomorrow uh, as a church. I had the privilege of being here uh, at the very beginning, so that's exciting. And my family was here. Uh, we were regulars here for about five years. And uh, now I'm the senior pastor of Harbor Churches, and so I work with all of our, uh, all of our different churches. And if, if we haven't met and you want to know more about Harbor Churches, you maybe hear about that on Sunday mornings. We're part of a family of churches. Well, I'm a part of that family, and I'm glad to be here uh, with you again this morning. Uh, so I want to... Uh, just start by talking about animals, because why not? They're cute and they're cuddly, right? How many of you are animal lovers? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you, like me, are animal likers? Yeah, you, I mean, you, you like animals, but you're not like an animal. My family, the rest of my family, or most of them, not all of them, but um, the ones at home right now, they're all animal lovers. And, uh, and so we have all kinds of animals. Uh, we would have even more if I wasn't an animal liker, right? Uh, I'm always kind of the one like holding the fort down, like let's have another cat, let's have another dog, let's have, a, you know, we've got these things called, I call them uh, creepy crawly creatures. Um, I don't even know what they are. There's something in a shell that like only comes out at night. I don't even, I just stay away from that stuff, right? We have a neighbor, um, maybe some of you have some, some of these weird animals, um, and yeah, I'm a little bit judgmental about this. Uh, my, our neighbors have a Russian tortoise, and uh, so we got, we had the privilege of taking care of the Russian tortoise this past week. Actually, it got away a couple weeks ago, and there was like a whole neighborhood search for the Russian tortoise, and we found the Russian tortoise, or somebody found it, two miles away crossing, crossing the road. Uh, lucky for them. Uh, and, you know, thank, thankful to Facebook, you know, for neighborhood, you know, Facebook group so we could, you know, get the tortoise back. Anyway, we took care of this tortoise this uh, last week while our neighbors were out of town. And did you know that tortoises will cuddle? No joke. We would take this, not me, we is a relative term here, but we, my family, would take the tortoise out and like sit on the couch and let the tortoise, you know, kind of crawl on you. And the tortoise would crawl up and like kind of dig into your neck and like cuddle up into your neck or cuddle into your, into your, so, you know, maybe your next animal is a Russian tortoise if you're looking for a little cuddler. No, not me. Um, so I said I'm an animal liker and, uh, you know, there's, there's this interesting thing, you know, we, we treat our animals really well, right? I have a friend, his name is Yakuv Garung. You might have met him. He's a Nepali church planter. Uh, we're in partnership with their church. They're over here in the Grand Rapids area, and we do a bunch of church planting together uh, in Nepal, which is wonderful. And, uh, and Yakuv is from Nepal and came here, and he said, Tom, he said to me once, he said, Tom, I, I don't understand. He said, I don't understand how you treat your dogs around here. I'm like, what do you mean? It's like, well, I'm trying to figure out who's the real owner because the dog walks in front of you and you walk behind. And then when the dog poops, you pick it up and carry around its poop in a little bag. It's like, we don't do that where we're from, right? Who, who owns who in this relation? Maybe you have an animal, like we've got a cat um, and the cat's name is Puddles and we rescued Puddles from a little puddle, which is why she's named Puddles. Um, but Puddles, like first, at first we thought we owned Puddles. But if you have a cat, you know that's never the case, Right? 
cat owns us. <laughs> Maybe your animals own you. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about ownership. Uh, talk about ownership. Uh, over the last several weeks, uh, over the last year, we've been going through the book of Matthew, but over the last several weeks, we've been in this little mini-series around power and authority and talking about the power that we have and how we use that power, how others use that power, because we know that power isn't a bad thing, but power can certainly be used for good or bad in our jobs, in our homes, and our relationships that we have. It can be used against us. It can be used for us. And so we're, we're going to wrestle with that again. We're going to look into power, and we're going to talk about ownership this morning. And I think today's story shows us not only how Jesus engages power in the midst of some conflict, but I think it actually gets at a fundamental truth about who you and I are as human beings this morning. So we're going to jump right into the scripture this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 22, starting at verse 15. The stuff will come up on the screen, but if you've got your Bible or the phone app, uh, feel free to pull that up as well. Matthew 22, beginning with uh, verse 15. Then... The Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him, that's Jesus, uh, in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now, you know when you come to South Harbor that you can't just read a sentence like that and just keep going, right? Because there's clues in here that we need to pay attention to. We've already got multiple characters in here. We've got the Pharisees and we've got the Herodians. So we're going to stop a minute and we're going to just understand what Matthew is trying to, how Matthew is setting up the story by telling us that you've got the Pharisees, and the Pharisees send their disciples along with the Herodians to Jesus. So maybe you know who the Pharisees are. There are lots of different kind of religious sects in Jerusalem at this time. Uh, we've talked about a lot of those over the last several weeks, about the, uh, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Pharisees. You've got the scribes. You've got all these different characters. Well, this is the Pharisees, and you might not Keep all that together in your head. So let me just tell you a little bit about the Pharisees. Pharisees are the religious leaders, and they have quite a bit of power in Jerusalem. They wield a lot of power. They're the kind of pastors, theologians, seminary professors, the denominational leaders. You know, they're the ones that kind of lead, and they monitor teachings and translate and those kind of things. The Pharisees taught that if Israel was just holy enough and pure enough, then... God would come back and would bring a Messiah who would return the throne to God. And so the Pharisees were the ones who were always making sure that you followed the rules, right? Because you needed to be holy. Make sure that you do this and you don't do that. They're the ones with all the rules, making sure that you follow the rules. And they were always asking, well, what's the, what's the hairline fracture on that rule? You know, and how do we make sure that we're on the right side of the rule? And here's what they did. Not unlike many Christians um, that you and I probably know. And we'll just exclude ourselves from this group for today. Um, but there are many Christians uh, who kind of mix Christianity and politics. You don't know anybody like that, right? I mean, you're certainly not like that, right? But they did. The, the Pharisees mixed their, uh, their following of God, their religion, with the political situation, so they got intertwined. They got kind of mixed up in the political power of the time. This is why this passage is about power. Anytime you're interacting with the Pharisees, you're usually dealing with some sort of power. And one of the things they did is they tried to wield the political power of their time, and Jesus threatened the power of the Pharisees. Because Jesus came along and said, you know what the Pharisees say? Uh, not, you don't necessarily have to listen to them. Right? And so Jesus was always kind of threatening the Pharisees. All right, that's the Pharisees. Now, the Herodians, Tim spent some time talking about Herod uh, the Great last week and about the mountain that he built. And, and then I know in other times he's taught about Herod's different sons. And so there's this whole legacy of the Herods. And, and King Herod, who Tim talked about last week, 
tons of money, tons of power, owned all of this area, and then passes that on to his children. And King Herod was a politician. And his legacy was political, and it was about power, and it was about kingdom. And Herod had been brilliant enough to hook himself up to the Roman government. You see, Rome had occupied all of this area at the time. And the Caesar had decided to put local people in charge. And Herod's like, I'm going to be that guy, right? And so the, the Herodian dynasty becomes entwined with the Roman political system. And the local Herodians are, are managing the system for and with Rome. And so they're like a political party, but more than a political party. We don't know a ton about them, but what we do know is that in this scene, we know that the partnership with them that the Pharisees make is a political partnership. Because Jesus is also a threat to Rome. He's been walking around and challenging the Roman authority. He's been challenging Herod's authority. And he's been challenging the Pharisees' authority. Now remember this, if you... Remember this if you already know this, or if, if it's new. Uh, know this, it was the Pharisees... And then these other groups we've talked about, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, that used Rome and kind of cozied up to Rome, intertwined with Rome when it was convenient in order to have Rome do their dirty work for them. It was Rome that killed Jesus, right? It, it wasn't the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the chief priests, but we know that likely that wouldn't have happened had not the religious authorities cozied up to and intertwined their faith with Rome in order for this to happen. In fact, in the trial of Jesus, there's this point, it's like, I, I don't really find any fault in this man. But then that whole, we'll get into that story probably in a couple weeks, right, Tim? Maybe? I don't know. Oh, is it around Christmas? Okay, yeah, we're taking the, taking the kind of slow walk. So what's interesting about the Pharisees is they have this kind of like... Uh, what I would call an ends justifies the means kind of spirituality. You see, they, want, they were committed to God. They, they loved God, and they wanted a specific type of world in which God was the king. But they would do things that were contrary to their own faith in order to get what they wanted. Hey, you know what? We don't actually have to kill Jesus or get rid of him. We just have to expose him to Rome and then Rome will do it, right? And then they would wipe their hands as if they were clean and as if there were no guilt there. So how we begin to see how the power dynamics take shape. The first lines of this story tell us that these two groups of people team up to introduce this sort of conflict with Jesus. So the Pharisees, which is this uh, politically involved religious group, and the Herodians end up coming together to destroy Jesus, and they want to expose him in some, the, the Pharisees want to expose him in some way that will um, do one of two things, but we'll get into that in a second. Let's keep reading, okay? Let's keep reading. I won't go as slow from now on, okay? Uh, teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity. I'm just going to stop there. I love that. It's like we're going to start off with this little, like, uh, affirmation of you, Jesus. We, hey, we know that you're, like, you're a man of your word, you're a man of integrity, and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Like You're a truth keeper, right? You're one of the good guys. And then they say this, you aren't swayed by others because you don't pay attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? 
I, I love how they start that. You know, you're a man of integrity, and then they kind of sneak him into this little trap. And maybe, maybe you've had this feeling before. Um, I don't know what your family's like, but um, some families have, like, both Republicans and Democrats in them. I know. Uh, it's odd. But sometimes that happens, and then you're stuck in the middle of them, and maybe they come up to you and they ask you a question, and they want you to pick a side, or they want you to pick something, uh, and you get that feeling, and Jesus is kind of in that moment, right? Like, huh, this feels a little bit like a trap, because it is a trap. Anybody here enjoy paying taxes? Nobody? Okay. I mean, we enjoy the benefits of some of those taxes, but nobody really enjoys paying taxes. And if you lived in this time, you enjoyed it even less. The taxes are way higher than ours today. And, and the Pharisees more than likely invited the Herodians to join them because they thought Jesus would oppose paying uh, the tax to Caesar. Jesus was known as this, you know, guy who was walking around and undermining the authorities all around. And so they're pretty sure, hey, if we come together with the Herodians to Jesus, Jesus is probably going to expose himself to the Romans, and and that would be good for us. Um, If that doesn't happen, then he will offend the Jewish people who are following him. Right? He's got all these Jewish people and all these people that are believing in him spiritually. And if he says to pay, and they believe that he's going to take off the power of Caesar in their life and the power of Rome. And so if he says to pay taxes to Caesar, then he's undermined, then they'll undermine his religious following. You see, these two groups are working together, this little delegation, with two different views on taxes in order to trap Jesus. Yes, pay taxes to Caesar. Well, then you're a Herodian, and then your followers are going to leave you. No, don't pay taxes to Caesar. Now, Rome has a reason to take you up on charges or whatever. Either way, it seems like Jesus loses. But check this out. This is where Jesus gets brilliant. And I know Tim has showed you this many times. Like, whenever Jesus is in a corner, look out. Because Jesus has, and he doesn't fight back. He just turns the tables a bit. And that's what Jesus does in this place. In the midst of this dichotomy and this volatile question, Jesus surprises. Here's what he does. But Jesus, continuing the scripture, verse 18, but Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. So they brought him a denarius, and he asked them, whose image is this? Whose inscription Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. So get this. And we need to do a little, we need to do a little, do a little digging as well in here to see what's going on. Because if you read, um, if, if you an NIV or any of the, the Bibles that you will pull out, they have uh, often these titles for these passages. Um, and this passage says something like uh, paying imperial taxes to Caesar or something like that, or Jesus on paying taxes. Or um, Just a note about your Bible, uh, those headings are put in there later by either translators, or by the publishers who are publishing it. So those, uh, be careful not to let those headings head you in a different direction. Because they're already making a determination to tell you what the passage is about. I don't think this passage is about paying taxes at all. I don't. I think the heading is wrong on that. And if you have a problem with that, take it up with Tim. Uh, 
I think he agrees with me. <laughs> but so first, it's important to remember where Jesus is during this time. Now, uh, as you've gone, if you've gone the slow walk with us, um, you'll see this. If you haven't, uh, then you can go back and listen to the podcast. But um, Jesus enters into a place in Matthew 21, and we find out that he doesn't really leave until Matthew 24, except at a time when he went to Bethany and when he walks by the mountain that Tim kind of talked about last week, right? So he enters into where? Where is he? Temple Mounts, right? He walks into the temple, into the courts, into those areas. I mean, obviously he's sleeping somewhere. We don't know where he is, but he's in that area. And do you remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at a story where Jesus enters the temple on Passover and he ends up flipping over a bunch of tables. And, and those tables, you, you may or may not remember what those tables are. First, there are people who are selling sacrificial animals, right? But do you remember what the other tables are? Okay, if you go back. It's money changers. Remember that language? It's money changers. And they, what they were doing was they were exchanging money with the picture of Caesar on it for other money because they didn't want to take a graven image into the temple. Because Jewish people weren't supposed to bring the Roman currency into the temple mount because it's a, it's a carved image on a coin. It could be considered a graven image. And that's one of the top ten. You know the Ten Commandments? You know, didn't make a, a, a graven image? And so you see what Jesus immediately does. He's in the Temple Mount. The religious leaders come to him, the ones who are supposed to be pure, who are supposed to watch the line, and they're asking him about taxes. And so he asks them to see a coin. And what coin do they produce but a coin containing the graven image of Caesar? It's like he immediately turns the table and catches them in a trap. Now, that coin is called a denarius. I think we have a picture uh, of a similar one uh, to this here. Um, maybe hit it one more time. See if that picture comes up. Or maybe not. Anyway, um, so the coin has a picture of Caesar on one side, uh, and then another picture on the other side, and then engraved in this, so it's got not only the picture of Caesar, but engraved in it is these words, uh, Ti Caesar, Divi Aug, Fi Augustus, which means Tiberius Caesar, Divi Augusti Filius Augustus. And on the reverse side, it says Pontific, Pontifex Maximus. My Latin's not that great. Sorry about that. Here's what, it's, what it means. Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus, and on the back, high priest. So not only do you have the picture of the Caesar which is a problem for Jewish people, you also have this claim of divinity and high priestly stature. I mean, this coin in itself is blasphemy to the Jews. And so Jesus asks, let me see the coin, and the religious leaders produce the coin. He's already turned the tables. The focus has already switched from him to them. Now, you can almost see Jesus kind of like winking at the crowd like, you see what I just did? Okay, we're going to go one step further, Jesus says. And he drives the point home and he says this. He says, whose image is this? And whose inscription? And maybe we could say it a little different, inscription. Whose writings or whose words are these? Whose words are these? Whose picture is this? Whose image is this? You have, a, you have a coin containing the image of Caesar on the Temple Mount. You're a religious leader. You're busted. And they put Jesus on the spot to find out if he's with the Jews or with the Herodians or just with himself. And instead, Jesus flips the script. He starts talking about images. So let's go one step further on the images thing. Okay? Let's go one step further because I, 
You could just stop there and say, yep, it's about taxes, it's an image, and the religious leaders are busted. But there's more to this story around images. The word that Matthew uses here um, for image is the word icon in the Greek. Now, you probably know that word. You've heard that word, right, an, an icon. We use, a, we use it a lot with computers now, right, or with uh, graphics and marketing. Uh, it's the word icon, and it's an interesting word in the Bible. It's used in very specific places in the Bible. It refers us to an image or a likeness. But everywhere we see it in the Bible, it also represents something else. Let me start with Paul. Now, Paul is writing later right? After Jesus' time. Um, So Jesus isn't referring to Paul here. Paul is, in a sense, probably referring uh, to Jesus. Here's what Paul says about Jesus. He says, the Son, which is Jesus, is the image, or the icon is the same word there, of the invisible God. Jesus is the icon of the invisible God. Remember what's written on that coin? The divine Augustus? Paul is picking up on the same thing that Jesus is picking up on here. The Son, Jesus, is the image, the icon of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Literally, that first line is Jesus is the icon of God. So imagine if Jesus knows this about himself, right, that he's the icon of God, and the religious leaders who are supposedly following the same God that is his God and his Father, and they bring him a different icon in the temple. Imagine imagine the, the conundrum that's happening here. You see, Jesus, Paul says later, was before all things before anything was created. And in Jesus and through Jesus, all things were created. And in Jesus and through Jesus, all things hold together. So when you wonder, when everything starts to fall apart, this is a great passage. In Jesus, all things hold together. When you wonder what's lasting and eternal importance, it's a great passage. In Jesus, all things hold together, not in Caesar. When you wonder how the world works and when everything seems like it's falling apart, Paul reminds us, in Jesus, all things hold together. But, but this comes after Jesus, right? Paul writes this reflecting on Jesus. More than likely, when Jesus is speaking about this, Jesus isn't thinking of Paul, because that comes later. Jesus is thinking of an earlier place in the Bible. Probably thinking about Genesis chapter 1, which maybe, you, maybe your mind already went there. Genesis chapter 1 says this, uh, verse 26 and 27. Then God said... Let us make humankind in our own image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the landscape and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So not only is Jesus the icon of God, but you are the icon of God. You see, Jesus knows that in the beginning, God created all humanity in the image of God. And so you you image the creator just in being who you are, just in being born, just in being alive. You image the creator. You were made in that image and the likeness of God. Just like when Paul says that when you see Jesus, you see God. 
right? He's the icon of God. He represents, let's think of those, uh, you know, marketing icons or computer icons. It's, it's a little telephone, and it, it is supposed to remind you of an actual telephone, right? Or you see the little picture of two people, and it's supposed to remind you of two people. In the same way, Paul is using the idea that when you see Jesus, You see the perfect representation of the God who made all things, through whom all things were made, and through whom all things hold together. And Genesis says, and I think this is woven through Jesus and what Paul is is saying, is that when you see another human being, you see the face of God. Uh, so this week we had a, a guest here on Thursday night, uh, Peter Mudabasi. Um, he is a, was a street kid uh, from Uganda, grew up in the streets of Kampala, um, had a terrible growing up experience with his father, and um, tells the story of how as he grew up, his father told him almost every day, you'll amount to nothing. And I wish you were never born because you're just another mouth to feed and he would work all day and come back and say, I wish I didn't have to work all day to feed you. And he went through the just uh, verbal, verbal abuse over and over. There was other abuse as well. Finally, Peter got sick of it and went to the bus station and asked, what's uh, the farthest bus or where does, which bus goes the farthest? And he took that bus and went as far as it could. And he became a street kid. And he tells the story about how for four years as a street kid, uh, the name that he had was Garbage. Everybody called the street kids garbage. And there was one day where a particular man came along, and it's a long story, I won't tell you the whole story, but that man asked him, what is your name? And he was scared about it because people hadn't asked that question. What is your name? And he said his name is Peter. And as Peter tells that story, he's a, today he's a foster dad, um, and he's just written a book called I Am Known. And in his book and in his story, he talks about how important it is to speak in, you know, powerful words so that you are known you are precious, you are special, you matter, you are enough, uh, and to, to say your name, because he realizes that each person, it took him a while to realize this, about himself, each one of us is created in the image of God. Every single one of us is special and important and amazing just because of how we were created and who's who we were created afterwards. We are the icons of God. I just, I just want to stop a moment in our story to remind you of that. Because we, I, I don't think in our world we hear this enough. Please hear, hear this this morning. If you don't hear anything else, you are not those destructive words that you've heard all your life. You are not. You are not the fake thing that you project on Instagram or the way you feel when someone else's projection on social media makes you feel less than. That is not who you are. You are not those words that circle in your head when you're feeling your worst. You are not your failures. You are not your sins. And when you've been the worst version of yourself, that is not who you are. You are not the lies that you tell yourself in your darkest moments. No, you are the icon of God. You are a child of God created in his image. You are beautiful, good, gracious, kind, joyful, capable of love, faith, goodness, gentleness, beauty, humble strength, perseverance, and love. That is who you are. When Jesus sees you, he sees the Father. When the Father sees you, he sees Jesus or sees the perfect image of himself in you because you are his child. His child. 
This is how Paul puts an exclamation point on it a little later in Colossians chapter 3. He says this, Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self. That's the lies and all the stuff that I just talked about, all the names, all the words. You have taken off that and its practices, and you have put on a new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in the what? Image of its creator. That is who you are. That is who you are. And Paul is telling us, tell each other the truth. You are amazing. You are incredible. You are phenomenal. This is some of the stuff that's behind what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about the image or the icon. Let me take this, um, let me take this one more step. I want to talk about imaging as a verb. One more step on what it means to be the image of God. Take that icon idea one more step. You see, Jesus isn't talking about taxes. In fact, he's talking about imaging. Who are you imaging? The Pharisees want to use power in this moment, and they want to ask, are you with us or are you with them? Whose power are you connected to here? Herod's power or the Pharisee's power? And Jesus says, no, I'm not attached to either. And here's where we get back to ownership. That's why I talked about animals in the beginning. (laughs) That's just to get your attention. I want to talk about ownership. And and it may feel like a little bit of a step to you, but um, Jesus says this, give back to Caesar what is of Caesar and give back to God what is of God. Uh, A couple other translations say it like this. Um, Give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give back to God what belongs to God. You see, Jesus knows this, and I think Paul knows it. The question is, do we know it? Who we are is determined by who we belong to. Uh, That might bother you, (laughs) right? Because you may feel like, well, I don't belong. But let me say it again. Who we are is determined by who we belong to. And Jesus is making a powerful claim here. You don't belong to the Pharisees. You don't belong to Caesar. You belong to God. And who you belong to is the one who owns you. Now, I know it's probably not politically correct to talk about being owned in in this world. But this is what Jesus is calling us to, saying, you belong to God. This coin, give it to Caesar. I don't care. It's a piece of metal. I, I don't even want to talk about that, Jesus says. I want to talk about who you actually belong to. Who owns you? So let's talk about ownership. Maybe you're like, well, no, nobody owns me. Like, I'm self-made. I'm a, you know, it's, it's 2022. Nobody owns me. I want to ask you three questions to help you discover. There are more questions I could ask to this, but I'll just do three. Three questions to ask to, to kind of figure out who, who owns me. First one is this. Who owns your time? Who owns your time? Every single one of us is given the same 24 hours, the seven days of, same seven days of the week. We don't know how many are the number of our days. None of us know that. So in a sense, we have the same sense of a lifetime. It might be short, it might be long, but we head into that the same. But how do you use that time? Because we all use it in radically different ways. Now, maybe you could say, well, my job owns me because I spend most of my time there. Don't think about exactly how much time you spend somewhere, but how you use the time. Maybe you could say, well, my kids own me because I spend all my time with my kids. Eh, maybe. Um, it is about time, but it's not 
just about time. The truth is that the things we spend the most of our time on are most likely the things that own us, but we can redeem the time. We can do the same things for the same time for very different reasons. Let me talk about jobs for a minute. Um, You can have an occupation that takes up all of your time. It's the thing that occupies your time, which is why it's called occupation, right? It's the thing that takes up all your time. I'm not asking you today to leave your occupation or to leave your job, but there's a difference between occupation and vocation. Vocation is what God calls you to. And so you can let your boss own you or the money you have to make own you or the time when you have to punch in and punch out own you or you can ask God, God, what have you called me to and give yourself to that? Do you think the difference in those two things changes how you show up at work? Absolutely. Who owns you? Does your boss own you? Does your job own you? Or does the God who created you with gifts and talents and sends you into a vocation for his kingdom work, does he own you? What does it mean to step out of the enslavement of one into the empowerment of the other? Who owns your time? Second one, go a little deeper. Who owns your attention? Who owns your attention? Again, if you think about the occupation thing, it's doing the job and pleasing the boss that, that... you know, takes my attention. What if I actually do my job for the glory of God because he's gifted me and wants me to make a difference for his kingdom in this way? What are you focused on or who are you focused on? You see, we pay attention, we focus on, we give our attention to the things that matter to us. What is getting not just your time, but what's getting your attention? Is it your fear that gets your attention? I know a lot of people who are living out of a complete attentiveness to fear. And that fear is driving a protectionism or a preparationism. And fear is the thing that gets attention. Or is it your drive for success that gets your attention so that you achieve one thing and it's just not enough and so your attention shifts to the next and you achieve the next thing and then you get that one and you shift to the next one? Are you so focused on producing and being successful? Has that gotten your attention? Has that, hear the language, captured your attention? Because when it's captured your attention, you become enslaved to it. Is it the next adventure? Is it the shame that seems to be a subtle sidekick because you keep feeding it and feeding it and keeping it around because somehow it makes you feel safe? What has captured your attention? That might be who owns you. One more step further. Last question. Harder one. Harder one yet. Who owns your heart? Or what owns your heart? It's really about your attention, your affection really ends up ultimately being about your heart, doesn't it? Because ultimately we give our attention and our time and our affection to the things and the people that we love. And so who are you giving your heart to? It's probably the hardest question that the scripture asks us this morning. Probably the hardest question that Jesus asks us this morning. I don't care about a coin (laughs) with Caesar's picture on it. I do care about your heart. Because you were created in the image of God and that God loves you and what he has asked in return is for your time 
and your attention and your affection. He's asked for your love. And this is where ownership comes in. Because to those whom we give our time and affection and our attention and ultimately our heart, those people or things become our lords. When you become a Christian, not just believing in the things that the scripture says, but when you actually become a follower of Jesus, you commit to Jesus as Lord of your life. You believe in him as your Savior. He died on the cross saving from him. Says, well, okay, Jesus says even the demons believe that. So what's the next piece? It's submitting to his ownership, to the lordship of Jesus Christ. I am not my own. He is my Lord. I wonder, have, have you given your life to Jesus? Not just the consent of the things that you believe, but have you submitted to his lordship by giving your time, your attention, your affection? Have you given him your heart? When I was a kid, uh, among a number of churches in this area, there was a phrase that many of us memorized uh, as children. Some of you will know this phrase, and it's a beautiful phrase. It's, uh, I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I belong to him. He owns me. I am not my own anymore. I have sacrificed myself, and I give myself all the way to him. There's a beautiful hymn I know from a kid, too. It, it, uh, at the end of each verse, it said, I am his, and he is mine. He has given himself fully on the cross. He gave his life. He gave his life to death for you and me. And he says, I want your affection, and I want to own you. But it's in a good way because he promises that that ownership will transform who we are. Your Lord is the one who owns your time, your attention, and your heart. And Peter says this. Peter, good friend of Jesus, he says in this word, which is a challenge at the end here, in your hearts set apart Jesus as Lord. So I wonder if we can wrestle what it means when Jesus says, give back to God what is God's. He's the creator. He's the one who fashioned you. He's the one that made you in his image. You actually belong to him. The question is, will we give him ourselves? Will we submit to his ownership and his leadership and his lordship? Will we give him all? All? <laughs> all of our time and our attention and our affection? Many of us are still owned by our shame. Many of us are owned by our debt. Many of us are owned by our fears. Many of us are owned by our false illusions of ourselves or our false illusions of God. Many of us are owned by our successes. Many of us are owned by the regulations that somebody else gave to us about how to live the right life. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Throw that all away. You belong to me. And that's the challenge this morning. For me, I've been a Christian a long time. I've been a follower of Jesus a long time. But every day, when I roll out of that bed, I have to choose. Who will I give my time and attention and affection to today? Who will be Lord of my life? And then, every moment of the day, I'm challenged with moments like this with Pharisees and Herodians. All kinds of challenge. Who will you choose today? Who will you set apart in your heart? Today we're going to celebrate communion. And communion is this moment in which we recognize 
that Jesus said, I'm going to give you my time and my attention and my affection because I love you. You were created in, in my image. I was there at the time, and in me all things hold together. And you know what? I'm going to give myself all the way for you, all the way to death. And communion is a celebration of that. It's a celebration that, are you kidding me? Somebody loves me that much? Like in all of my shame and all of my fear and all of my sins and all of my worst places, like somebody actually loves me enough to give their life for me? I have a really good friend uh, who uh, had, a, had a baby just oh, about a week and a half ago. First child. Uh, child almost didn't make it. And we were sitting in the hallway at DeVos the other day. And he said, Tom, I didn't know that I could love someone this much. And he said, if I could have given myself for him, I would have. And he said, I'm kind of embarrassed. He said, I never would have died for anybody else before. <laughs> but this little boy, who was hours old, days old at the time, he said, I realize now I would give my life. And I had the opportunity to look him in the eyes and said, now you understand how deep the Father's love for us, that he would send his only son in this case, he would go himself to take our place. Jesus loves us that much. So when we celebrate communion, that's what we're celebrating. The question is, will you receive it? And will you give your time and attention and affection back? Years ago, I made that decision. I made the decision. And I said, I'm going to step into your kingdom, God. I'm going to step out of these other kingdoms. I'm going to step into your kingdom, and you will be my Lord. You own me. Many of you have done that. Uh, some of you probably haven't. Today's an opportunity for you to do that again. Every time we come to this table, I'm going to come back here. Every time we come to this table, we do that again, just like we get out of bed in the morning. We say, I am yours and you're mine. Uh, today, if you've never done that, I would love for you to take a step towards Jesus today uh, and, and invite him to be the Lord of your life. And if that happens, we definitely want to talk to you about it. I would love to talk to you, Tim, anybody else. Um, uh, Jesus, after all of these things happened and he went to the cross and was crucified uh, by Rome and by the religious authorities and by those power dynamics. He was in the grave for three days and then he rose again and conquered death. And then he appeared to his disciples and he spoke to them and they remembered a time before his death when he gathered with them and they were around a table like this and he, they didn't understand it at all at the time, right? Isn't it great to know that? Like we, we don't always understand, that's okay. We will come to understanding. Jesus was with them at that time and he took bread and he gave thanks to his father in heaven for it and he, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Each time that you eat of it, do so in remembrance of me. In the same way, Jesus took the cup of blessing and he poured it out for them, giving thanks to his Father for it. And he said, this is the new covenant, the New Testament, the new relationship in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Each time you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. And so as we come, as we do so, we do so in remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. I'm going to give you a couple instructions. I'll pray, and then we can uh, come forward for communion. There are four tables here, two here, two on the outside. Uh, if you need gluten-free, uh, there's gluten-free on the outside tables. There's also, we have a, a Romer, um, Bob 
boot. Did I get that right? Where's Bob? Bob right here. If you uh, would like to stay in your seat or if you can't uh, get to one of the tables, feel free to just put your hand up. Bob will get over there and we'll bring the elements to you. Um, and we don't, we just kind of, it's like organized chaos here. There are four tables. You get there. Uh, when you get there, uh, we take by intention. So you can take a piece of bread uh, and then you can dip that in the cup and you can partake that back of your seat or you can take it right there. Uh, you can have that moment uh, with Jesus saying thank you to him for his deep, deep love for you. Let's pray and then we'll uh, come forward for communion. Father God, we thank you that you have focused your time and attention and affection on us. So much so that you would send Jesus, that you would come in Jesus to take our place, um, to take the sins of the world upon your shoulders. Why? Because you love us. Because you created us, you poured yourself into us, you made us in your image, and you love us. God, I pray that as we come to the table this morning that we would remember the deep, deep love that you have for us and the great sacrifice that Jesus made for us so that we too could be called children of God. We bless you in Jesus' name. We hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., you can find our service streamed live on our Facebook page. And so from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.